We don't know. When exactly will Donald Trump go to trial in any of the four criminal cases he is facing as he runs for president? It is a murky, unclear answer that may get some clarity in the coming weeks. For Saturday, January 27th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, a key U.N. organization delivering aid to Gaza is suddenly under pressure. We'll look at why that is and what it means for the work it carries out. Also, why New York's Museum of Natural History closed down two exhibits on Native Americans today. These items were apparently stolen or ended up in hands that weren't Native American, and they should be returned. And with apologies to my co-host, Juana Summers, a look at the Baltimore Ravens run through the NFL playoffs. It's something that brings everybody together. No matter who you are, you're rooting for your Baltimore Ravens. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Australia, Britain, Canada, and Finland are joining the U.S. in pausing payments for the main U.N. agency supporting people in Gaza after the agency fired several workers for alleged involvement in the October 7th Hamas attack. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. Canada's Minister of International Development, Ahmed Hussein, called the allegations, quote, extremely serious. He said that while Canada would continue to provide aid to people in Gaza, it would suspend its contributions to the agency until the UN had completed an internal investigation. Australia's Minister of Foreign Affairs made a similar statement. The U.S. announced yesterday that it was pausing funding after it learned from Israel that a dozen employees of the relief agency had been involved in the October 7th attacks, which left some 1,200 Israelis dead. The U.S. provided $422 million in aid to the agency last year to support Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Top officials from the U.S. and China met in Thailand over the weekend, part of diplomatic efforts from both sides to bridge differences and maintain communication despite intense competition. NPR's Emily Fang has more. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in Bangkok. A statement from the White House noted Sullivan said, although the two countries have a competitive relationship, quote, both countries need to prevent it from veering into conflict or confrontation. Wang Yi, who was recently reappointed as China's foreign minister after the last one disappeared, applauded the restart of military talks between the U.S. and China. Both countries are also looking to hold a summit this spring on artificial intelligence, an area where they are both in competition. And the White House says President Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping will be in close communication going forward, including by planning a phone conversation. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. President Biden is in South Carolina today to campaign ahead of the state's primary. And Piers Asma Khalid has more. Biden is speaking at the South Carolina Democratic Party's dinner tonight. The First Lady was also campaigning in the state yesterday. South Carolina's primary is Saturday, February 3rd. And what's new this year is that it'll now be the first state for Democrats. Biden had encouraged his party to change the process and put South Carolina at the beginning, before Iowa and New Hampshire, to elevate the voices of black voters. In 2020, about 60 percent of South Carolina's Democratic electorate was black. The Biden campaign has been investing in South Carolina to show the president is committed to black voters, who are a key part of any Democratic presidential victory. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump campaigns in Nevada today, the next Republican primary state after New Hampshire. This a day after a jury awarded more than $83 million to writer E. Jean Carroll for defamation. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. On this International Holocaust Remembrance Day, Boston Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says it's a time to remember the six million Jewish lives senselessly stolen. In a message this afternoon, Presley called for action to honor their memory by ending anti-Semitism and providing more education on the Holocaust. The remains of a Holyoke sailor who was killed at Pearl Harbor were buried today in his hometown. The Defense Department says 25-year-old Merle Hillman was on board the USS California when it was hit by two torpedoes and a bomb. Hillman's remains, remains were identified through DNA analysis. Boston City Councilors are asking the state for more resources to recycle mattresses. The state requires communities run a mattress recycling program. Four councilors tell the State Department of Environmental Protection the city is struggling to keep up with demand. The Boston Herald reports that the city spent about $3.5 million last year to run the program. A coastal storm will, be, will bring rain and snow late Sunday and into Monday. Maybe an inch of snow is forecast for Boston. National Weather Meteorologist Alan Dunham says north and west of 495 will get the most snow. Northern Worcester County will see upwards of 6 to 8 inches of snow. Dunham says it'll be slippery. People need to allow extra time for your morning commute Monday morning, uh, especially if you're coming in from uh, northwest of the city. The Steamship Authority is warning of possible service disruptions on Monday. Wind gusts of up to 50 miles per hour are in the forecast for Cape Cod and the islands. The Steamship Authority says ferries between the Cape and Nantucket are likely to be canceled. Cancellations are also possible on the Martha's Vineyard route. 37 degrees at 5.06, cloudy skies tonight with a low around freezing, a chance of snow in the morning tomorrow, then rain near 40. Snow possibly mixed with rain on Sunday night. Snow Monday just about an inch, mid-30s, and mostly sunny on Tuesday, mid-20s. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The United Nations agency tasked with delivering aid to millions of people in Gaza has seen its funding suspended by several nations following revelations that employees may have been involved in the October 7th attack on Israel that killed 1,200 people. The controversy comes at a time when intense fighting is continuing around hospitals and aid facilities in southern Gaza. Joining me to discuss the latest from Tel Aviv is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Scott. So this agency is among the most important entities operating in Gaza. Who has suspended their funding and why? This all began when Israeli authorities found evidence that United Nations employees had been involved in October 7th. In a statement to NPR, the Israeli military said its intelligence directorate had reviewed the events around October 7th, and as it did so, it found incriminating evidence that several of the agency's employees were involved in the massacre and that UN facilities were actually used for terrorist purposes. Now, the UN isn't providing further details for now, but Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he was horrified by the allegations, the employees were fired, and the U.N. has launched an investigation. The U.S. State Department says that 12 employees in total were involved, and it also said it was pausing funding to the agency in question while it looked into the allegations and the steps the U.N. was taking to address them. 
Today, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, and Italy were among the other countries that followed suit and paused their funding. Tell us more about this agency, though, the work it does, and why it is so central to helping Palestinians. Yeah, its name is a little bit of a mouthful. It's called the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. It was founded in 1949, and it runs schools, health clinics, and aid distribution sites throughout Gaza, the West Bank, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. Now, in Gaza, it has around 13,000 employees, many of whom are Palestinian, and it has really been on the front lines of this war. Its schools and warehouses have turned into shelters for well over a million Palestinians fleeing the fighting. These sites have repeatedly come under fire, and 152 of the agency's own employees have been killed since this all began. Okay, so what will happen now, though? So the agency has asked the U.N.'s Office of Internal Oversight Services in New York to conduct an investigation. It's unclear how long that's going to take. And it's also unclear how long the agency can continue to operate with the funding it currently has. The U.S. is by far the largest funder, and its dollars matter a lot. Last year, it gave $422 million towards the agency's appeal to address the needs of Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and beyond. The agency has been in a funding crisis on and off for years now. The war has put enormous strain on its employees. And obviously, if it can't function, that could spell disaster for hundreds of thousands of Palestinians trapped in Gaza, for who this is really been a lifeline having this agency working for them. Yeah, and and let's 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 end broadening out and talking about those Palestinians for a moment, people stuck in Gaza. What is the situation for them at this moment? Yeah, things have really gone from, you know, being very bad to being even worse. So Israel is conducting a big offensive in a city called Khan Yunis. It was home to a large UN shelter, two hospitals, and a Palestinian Red Crescent Ambulance Center. And all of these facilities have been paralyzed by the fighting. Our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, has been speaking to people who fled the area, including Abdullah Tantish, whose father was struck by a stray bullet. <laughs> He says, we took him running and screaming, please help us, but no one could help or respond to us. I started running with my uncle and my brother carrying him, and we didn't even know where to take him. Today, we're hearing that the largest remaining hospital in Gaza, which is in this neighborhood where the fighting's been, is near collapse. The group Doctors Without Borders says the hospital can no longer provide critical medical services But continued fighting and a lack of ambulances has left about 350 patients trapped inside. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield joining us from Tel Aviv. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Scott. It's time for Trump's trials. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Our weekly take on all of the legal challenges former President Trump is facing, all while running for president again. Yesterday, a New York jury ordered Trump to pay the writer E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million for defamation. This is the second time that Trump has been ordered to pay Carroll. Last year, a different jury ordered him to pay her $5 million for a separate instance of defamation in a case where the jury also found that Trump sexually abused Carol. You can hear more about yesterday's verdict on our companion podcast, Trump's Trials. But now we are going to focus on two of the criminal cases against Trump that we've not talked a lot about recently. 
That's the classified documents case out of Florida, where Trump is facing 40 charges, including violating the Espionage Act. This case centers around Trump allegedly taking classified documents to his Mar-a-Lago club slash residence and then allegedly refusing to return them to the government. We'll also check in on the hush money case out of New York, where Trump is facing 34 state-level counts, all surrounding payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. These payments centered around the 2016 election and Trump's attempts to hide the affair that he had with Daniels. To break all of this down, I am joined by Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Hey, Kerry. Hey, Scott. So let's start with Florida, the classified documents case. Again, all about Trump taking classified documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. Since this happened after he left office, presidential immunity, we should start off with, is a non-issue, right? Mostly, although uh, Trump might argue that some of this packing was done while he was still in the White House. That's to be determined. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of the conduct, including his refusal to honor the Justice Department's increasingly insistent request to return these materials, were post-White House for Donald Trump, for sure. And this has been, at times, a pretty dramatic case. This was the case where the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, which really was a big moment of, wow, this is some serious stuff happening here. Remind us what the key issues are and what we need to remember about it, since, again, it's kind of been on the back burner lately. Sure. The Justice Department says that Trump uh, had in his possession at Mar-a-Lago in really unsecured rooms like a ballroom and a bathroom and all kinds of other places in this resort, which is crawling with members of the public and guests and members, materials as sensitive as nuclear secrets and war plans. These are some of the highest level security documents the United States owns. And Donald Trump doesn't own them, the Justice Department says. The government does. And when the FBI I asked repeatedly for the return of these materials. Trump and his lawyers gave some of them back. But finally, when the FBI raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, it found a bunch of additional documents, including some in a desk drawer along with his personal passport. And of course, you mentioned the picture of the documents in the bathroom, which was this instantly iconic image from one of the court filings. Absolutely. And, you know, he's standing trial with two people. One, Walt Nauta, his valet, who's accompanied him all over the place on the campaign trail and even to other court hearings. And the second, Carlos de Oliveira. But uh, interestingly here, the Justice Department does have a cooperator, another person who worked at Mar-a-Lago, who is apparently testifying about the refusal of Trump and others to give those papers back. What do we need to know about what's been happening in this case in recent weeks? A lot's been happening in the court docket, but none of it is super interesting, I'm afraid to say. (laughs) What's happening here is a huge push and pull over classified information. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump wants access to all this information. The Justice Department doesn't want to give him all the classified information. And the other point of debate is how much of the information will a jury potentially ever be able to see? This is a huge issue in all these national security cases. Defendants want to push the limits and try to prod the Justice Department into making material public um, that the intelligence community does not want to be made public. And ultimately, the decider here is going to be Judge Eileen Cannon. And she set a series of uh, briefings back and forth on this. And she's going to have a hearing in the case, I believe, uh, March 1st. Any sense of the timing of when this trial could be? We don't know. It's supposed to start May 20th, but most everybody involved in the case on either side thinks that's going to slip because of all these fights about the classified material. So we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. 
All right, let's move to New York, where Trump is accused of falsifying business records to pay off adult film actress Stormy Daniels to keep quiet about their affair. This is the first of all of these charges. This was the moment when a former president was charged with crimes for the very first time. Carrie, is there anything new in this case? Yeah, these are felony violations, but paperwork violations. If Trump, who has pleaded not guilty, is ultimately convicted, he's unlikely to face any jail time. Let's just say that straight out. Um, and no major new developments here, but we do expect a hearing in mid-February, uh, February 15th, on whether this trial is going to happen in March or whether it's going to slip. And we know that District Attorney Alvin Bragg has said, hey, I'm happy to go second or third if one of these Justice Department special counsel cases goes first. That's cool. But uh, we don't know for a fact that that trial is going to move yet. And as Bragg has said, that there's been a lot of political chatter of, of whether it politically makes sense for those who would like to see Trump convicted of some of these crimes to not have the seemingly more low-level hush money case go first, opposed to these big consequential cases about overturning an election. Yes. Allegedly paying somebody off in the weeks before the 2016 election is not the same magnitude as a fomenting violence at the United States Capitol. We can just put it that way. That's that's an accurate statement. Um, I think you kind of already answered this question, but any general sense of timing for this trial? This might be the case to go first, but we don't know. And in the meantime, we're going to have a uh, U.S. Supreme Court hearing in just a couple of weeks on yet another key question, whether or not Colorado has the right to kick Trump off the ballot because of the 14th Amendment, which bars insurrectionists from holding federal office. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Museum. Feel the power of play with sock skating, fun activities in the polar playground, and over 20 exhibits to explore. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, WBUR.org. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. It's on every Saturday night, and it runs until 8. 37 degrees at 518. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden campaigns in South Carolina today, speaking at the state's Democratic Party dinner tonight. South Carolina's primary takes place next week. Meanwhile, former President Trump is delivering remarks at a rally in Nevada today. This after a jury yesterday awarded writer E. Jean Carroll more than $83 million after finding that Trump defamed her. And President Biden says he would shut down the border with Mexico if necessary, if Congress approves a bipartisan immigration deal being negotiated in the Senate. House Speaker Mike Johnson had said he wouldn't strengthen border security even with the legislation. 
And Tesla is recalling around 200,000 vehicles because of a software problem that can cause the rear-facing camera feed to malfunction. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Two exhibit halls at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City just closed permanently today because of updated federal regulations. It's one of the most high-profile examples of museums across the country scurrying to cover display cases and take artifacts off of exhibit. But many are saying this is not a bad thing. NPR's Jennifer Vanasco joins me to talk about all of this. She was at the museum yesterday, hours before the halls closed. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Scott. So let's start with this. What are these new regulations? Well, they're an update of the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. That took effect this month, and it basically says if human remains or ceremonial objects or funeral objects were taken from tribal lands or federal lands, they need to be returned. But of course, that is complicated. Museums have thousands of objects. An object I saw yesterday, a staff covered in otter skin. It was used for a ceremony or say a medicine bag from a shaman. Maybe those were collected like 150 years ago. And back then they didn't really care who an object belonged to or some people I'm sure cared, but a lot of people didn't. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's hard to trace. So the museums still have a lot of these artifacts and 30 years later, they have thousands of them. So we're talking about a 1990 law here. What happened more recently? What happened in this update? This update is extensive, but the key points are first, these objects can't be on display or used for research unless there is consultation and explicit permission from the tribe they belong to. And second, The burden is now on the museums to reach out to tribes for that permission. It used to be the other way around. Okay. So you were at the museum yesterday when these halls were still open, their last day. What did you see? How were people reacting? So the thing is, is that even though these might be well-known, Scott, I have spent a lot of time in this museum, and usually these halls are pretty empty because they're kind of boring. But (laughs) yesterday, there were so many people. It was crazy. What were the people you talked to saying? You know, there are a lot of people were there just for like the Instagram of it, mm-hmm. right? They wanted to see these things before they closed. But a lot of people share the sentiment of a woman I talked to, Nancy Crable. She was visiting from Wichita, Kansas. She said, it's interesting to see the artistry of these pieces and learn more about the culture. But then she said this. Yet these items were apparently stolen or ended up in hands that weren't Native American and they should be returned. But I also talked to a man there, an archaeologist not affiliated with the museum. He said he was worried that if people can't research these objects, these stories are going to be lost to history. Well, what are museum officials saying about this? Are they concerned that uh, they aren't going to be able to use these objects for research purposes? It is the concern of a lot of museums, but it's not actually a concern of the American Museum of Natural History. 
I spoke to Sean Decatur, the president. Here's what he had to say. This is a really essential thing for us to do in order to also begin the process of repairing some of the harm and damage and building a new set of relationships uh, that can can help to move us all forward. Probably most important question here, how are Native American groups feeling about this uh, decision? They're really happy about it. They've actually been working to get these regulations updated for a decade. I spoke with Shannon O'Loughlin. She's the chief executive of the Association on American Indian Affairs, and she's Chaka. I truly believe the NAGPRA regulations, at least at this period in time, are about as perfect as we can get them. NAGPRA is just the shorthand for the regulations we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And she says, though, the work isn't over. The regulations still don't cover private collections or auction houses. And she says they need to because a ton of artifacts are there. That's NPR's Jennifer Vanasco. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. When we talk about the epidemic, most people will now immediately think about COVID. But 40 years ago, we were in the middle of another one, AIDS. HIV and AIDS surfaced in the early 1980s and have since killed over 40 million people. There's a new podcast out from the History Channel and WNYC Studios called Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows, and it challenges the narrative about those early years and reminds us of the incredible role that health officials play in our public health. Blindspot uncovers stories that most people do not know about the early days of HIV and AIDS, including a pediatric ward in Harlem it turned itself into a place to care for kids with the disease. Here's WNYC host Kai Wright. Most people probably don't associate kids with HIV and AIDS. And if they do, they think about Ryan White. He was 13 years old, living in Indiana, when he was diagnosed with AIDS in 1984. He got it through a blood transfusion. And when his HIV status became known, he was kept from going to a school, he became the face of children living with AIDS. But in reality, almost all kids who tested HIV positive were born with it. At that time, 80% of the known pediatric cases in New York could be traced to IV drug use. And 90% of these children were Black or Latino. Harlem Hospital was an epicenter. My colleague Lizzie Ratner heard about the early days from Maxine Frere, who spent 40 years as a nurse at Harlem Hospital. Maxine, what year did you start working on AIDS stuff specifically at the hospital? The, the day it started. <laughs> Here's what it was like at the hospital early on. Doctors and nurses in pediatrics started hearing from colleagues in other departments about a new illness they were seeing. But everyone thought it was just about gay men including Dr. Margaret Haggerty, the woman who headed up the pediatric ward. And I think to myself, self, whatever this is, I don't have to worry about it. It's in gay men. And I am not an immunologist. I wouldn't know a T-cell if I tripped over it. Steve Nicholas worked for Dr. Haggerty. He wasn't worried either. I thought that's got no relevance to kids whatsoever. But soon enough, kids were showing up at the hospital with a range of symptoms. The doctors at Harlem may not have worried about the disease to start, but they were forced to confront it head on. Big liver and spleen, big lymph nodes, yeast infection, both at the mouth and down in, into the esophagus. That was like an explosion. And roughly how many kids would you say there were from year to year? Well, you know, it started as one, then it was Two, then it was four, then it was, uh, you know, this sort of progression. 
I would say that by the end of the first year, we had dozens. And before long, we had, you know, a couple hundred. Couple I hundred's thought, a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Turns out that the highest rate of mother-baby AIDS in the country was Central Harlem. Back in those days, if a woman was HIV infected, she had a one in three chance of having a child who was HIV infected. Mm -hmm. Monica DeGrotto was another nurse on the ward. She worked with Nurse Maxine and Dr. Steve. So those were huge, I mean, horrible odds. This was long before we understood the science behind mother-to-child transmission and long before we could take steps to prevent it. Many of the women were also drug users, and the combination of the drugs and the scary disease admit patients were not always treated well, even at Harlem Hospital. Ignorance of HIV, not just in the community, but professional people, was crazy. On the 17th floor, on the pediatric ward, Nurse Maxine says this ignorance meant people kept a certain distance. They didn't like to come in the room, so when they came to our wall, they, they knocked on the door. Um, there's somebody looking for you. They wouldn't come in the room. But on other floors of the hospital, it got worse. I remember one particular mother who had a baby down on the fourth floor. So the second M was born, and the baby was, like, over there, and the mother was around the corner, around the bend, by herself, postpartum. Nobody went to see her until we came down to see her. Where is she? We, nobody knew. She was isolation. She has AIDS. You know, the stigma of being, oh, she's a drug addict. She's a anything. And so our families were really abused, neglected. I'll say neglected, not abused. But that's abuse, right? You know, you have to remember the time. You know, we were in the thick of the crack epidemic. Before Nurse Monica worked in pediatrics at Harlem, she worked in foster care. She saw firsthand how drug use and our attitudes towards drug users at the time contributed to what was happening inside the hospital. Um, women would come in to give birth. They would be tested, you know, if there was any suspicion of a substance use. Um, and if that substance use test came back positive, those kids were put on a social hold. Social hold, right. Especially today, this is a controversial term. Social hold meant kids were prevented from going home with their mothers. These were decisions made often without much thought given to their birth families. Kids were evaluated by a hospital social worker. What support did the kid need? Can the family provide it? And if the hospital was concerned, they'd mark the kid as a social hold and call child welfare to investigate. And oftentimes, you know, just with the bureaucracy, these kids were stuck. The world outside of the 17th floor of Harlem Hospital was not welcoming to kids with HIV and AIDS. But inside the hospital, on the pediatric unit, Dr. Haggerty made sure her doctors and her nurses took a different approach. And in oral history, she remembered going on rounds. And I quite deliberately would pick one of those infants up and put him in the arms of an intern. And then I would take another one, and we would continue down the hallway making rounds, carrying yeah. these children with us. Uh, we managed to, uh, uh, to do away with the fear and loathing of children with AIDS. And this, over a period of weeks to months, I'd find these kids on the near of the 
security guard or mm -hmm. being carried around by the children and so on. Uh, and so the staff bonded to these mm -hmm. children. We probably in this room have four or five children. Here from a documentary, Dr. Haggerty tours the ward. Who are here not because they're ill enough to require hospitalization, but because uh, I, we have no alternative placement for them. And these kids could stay in the hospital for a long time. That's called a temper tantrum. The average length of stay for babies with AIDS at Harlem Hospital was 339 days. Some infants were literally growing up in the hospital. Border babies. Border babies. Border babies. Border babies, as we call them. Border babies. Boarded and raised from birth until they die within the confines of hospital wards. That got essentially their room and board at the hospital because they, they had nowhere to go. Well, I want to go back to those wards. Walk me through the ward. So you walk off the elevator, and you make a left turn, and you went into the blue room. There was no identifying mark, because we didn't want the kids to be identified, but everybody knew the blue room was the HIV room, right? I got to be a kid when I was there. Victor Reyes was born HIV positive at Harlem Hospital in 1989. And during his childhood, he would come back there for treatment and birthdays. You bought the cakes, I'm sure. Did you bake them? <laughs> no. Staff brought stuff in from home. Dr. A's father put a blue carpet down. They wanted the ward to seem normal for kids. You even have to show ID. You felt really special after a while because your security knows me. I just say the number. Bought, bought a wash machine. You know, if you could wash clothes. <laughs> the staff did this, right? Staff wanted their patients to have real lives. Given tickets, take the kids to Radio City. And the circus. Right, the circus. <laughs> they gave us a lot of outlets, for sure. Went to summer camp every single summer. Yeah, you know, we'd have the camp once a year. And we used to lay out in the sun and the moon and watch the stars. Tiki torches lit up all over the grounds. Their goal is just to put whoever is there on a pedestal and to show them that there's love here, period. And they did a phenomenal job at that. We were a family. And as in many families, there are specific stories that people don't want to forget. James was on one out, pride and joy. That's Maxine Frere, a nurse who spent more than 40 years at Harlem Hospital. To hear more about James and others, download Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows, wherever you get your podcasts. The new show comes from the History Channel and WNYC Studios. This is NPR News. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It was created nearly two decades ago by the UN General Assembly to mark the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. For many, this year, this day rings differently in the aftermath of the October 7th attacks. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports. Holocaust Museum LA traces the history of the genocide from its origins through liberation. This gallery is important 
because this is, who are we talking about, 1933 to 1938? Beth Keen is the museum's CEO. I feel very lucky to have a photo of my grandfather as part of our core exhibit. She points to a small sepia picture of a group of little boys wearing prayer shawls and payas. And it looks like he's around eight years old. He's in the front row on the far left. He survived and told stories about living in fear of death. One lesson Keen heard over and over from her grandparents was that it could happen again. And so Holocaust Remembrance Day and her life's work are in part for Keen about proving them wrong, especially this year following the October 7th massacre of more than 1,200 by Hamas terrorists. This day is an important reminder that the whole world needs to come together now more than ever to stand up and speak out against all forms of hate. It is not the Holocaust, but there are very clear connective threads that remind us of the Holocaust because of the experience of October 7th. A pogrom, really. For Richard Hirschout with the American Jewish Committee, those threads include Jews hiding in safe rooms, being shot, mutilated. The sort of evil that was perpetrated upon the Jewish people and millions of other innocents during the Holocaust is not a distant memory. Which is why, Hirschout says, Holocaust Remembrance Day is especially poignant this year. The day serves as a stark reminder for Rabbi Noah Farkas that the Holocaust rallying cry, never again, might have been spoken too soon. If I had to use a word to describe how we're feeling, it's disillusioned disillusioned that the world has so quickly turned from the horrors of the Hamas attack to fights on campuses about free speech or at city council meetings over votes to stand with Israel. Farkas heads the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Starting on October 7th, we've come to the realization that the privilege that we thought we've built, at least here in America, is entirely conditional, and that that privilege was completely stripped out from underneath us. He points to the dramatic rise in anti-Semitic instances. This current sorrow, Farkas says, echoes the ancient sorrow of a biblical prophet. I think of Ezekiel's metaphor of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel sees his temple destroyed, wanders into the desert bereft, and comes upon a valley of death. Farkas says the lesson from Ezekiel this Holocaust Remembrance Day is not giving in to despair. Resurrection of the dead, literally or figuratively, begins with the resurrection of hope. Death and anti-Semitism don't circumscribe what it means to be a Jew, says Farkas. Rather, he defines his community by acts of loving kindness, by joy, and ultimately by life. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Los Angeles. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your weekend with 90.9 WBUR and for listening every day. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. I'm Susan Levy. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. It's on every Saturday night and it runs until 8. 
Outside of election news, there's a sentencing hearing Monday for a man who stole a pair of red ruby slippers worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz. The heist was 20 years ago, and the accused is in hospice care now. The story and wait, wait tomorrow morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. 37 degrees at 539, cloudy tonight, rain tomorrow, snow on Monday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard. Back with free public arts events every Thursday night starting January 25th. Harvard.edu slash Arts Thursdays. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. More countries are joining the U.S. in temporarily suspending funds to the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees after it fired a dozen employees that Israel says participated in the Hamas attacks on October 7th. The U.S. provided $422 million in aid to the agency last year to support Palestinians in Gaza. Meanwhile, the largest remaining hospital in Gaza is on the verge of collapse as fighting intensifies between Israel and Hamas in the southern part of the enclave. The relief group Doctors Without Borders says there's nowhere left for many patients to go. And flags are flying at half-staff in Massachusetts for a serviceman who died at Pearl Harbor more than 80 years ago. His remains were recently identified. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology, SmartMouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters or at SmartMouth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It has been more than 50 years since an NFL conference championship was held in Baltimore. This Sunday, that will change as the Baltimore Ravens host the Kansas City Chiefs. Scott Massioni of member station WYPR reports on the buzz rippling across the city as it prepares to host the AFC conference championship. At the Ravens training facility, the Marching Ravens band is practicing for the last time before they'll perform in their biggest home game since the Baltimore Colts beat the Oakland Raiders for the AFC Championship in January 1971. Well, I'm the only one that's still active in professional football that was at that game. John Zeman's the Marching Ravens band president and has been with the band since 1962. He says the Ravens hosting this year's championship is an important milestone for the area. It does something great for the state, it does something great for the city, the fans. It's something that brings everybody together. No matter who you are, you're rooting for your Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens won it all in 2013, but never hosted the AFC Championship game during that run. Band director Dan Fake says band members will be forming imagery that celebrates Baltimore as they perform in Sunday's pregame show. We got the logo, we've got the Super Bowl trophy in there, we've got our B logo that fans can resonate with. We're, we're trying to make those connections to the team, to the brand, and just say, this is Baltimore football. It's not just the band that's hyped, though. Baltimore's Enoch Pratt Library downtown is lit with Ravens-colored purple lights. Megan McCorkle's the library's communications director. 
We have a lot of football memorabilia, football books that you can check out. So we are creating in a bunch of our branches, lots of different collections and displays so that you can check out books. You can relive the last big Super Bowl win of the Ravens. So we're going to have a lot of collections that people can check out to kind of get in the spirit. The library has even created a Taylor Swift section since she's expected to attend the game to watch her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, a star tight end for the Chiefs. Ashley Gardner teaches a class on Taylor Swift at Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, and says Swift's likely presence is bringing a whole new level of excitement to the game. People that I'm friends with have really seriously suggested I might buy parking lot tickets or be around the stadium just to see if I can catch a glimpse. Of course, you can't forget the bars. Mothers in Federal Hills expecting to sell a ton of Baltimore's signature drink, the Orange Crush. Crushes are a mixture of crushed ice, vodka, triple sec, and fresh squeezed juice. Cerise Sidibe is a bartender at Mother's. It's going to be like anything we have never seen before. We, we, we here. It's going to be very exciting. There's going to be a lot of people out. There's going to be a lot. All that excitement is stemming from one thing, the fans. Suleiman Kibwana is a nurse originally from Kenya. She's been a Ravens supporter for 20 years. Whoa, it's going to be powerful. It's going to be crazy. So I only have my lucky socks that I wear for the Ravens. And we are always been the underdogs. The world is going to know that we are the best team in the NFL. Marching Ravens president John Zeman says it's fans like Kibwana that make the Ravens work. We're all together, no matter who you are, where you live, what you do. You're sitting in that stands. Oh, you're outside the stadium. Baltimore is the fans. Ravens is a team. Put them together and you got Baltimore Ravens. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott has challenged Kansas City's mayor, wagering two dozen Maryland crabs on the big game. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. At the 96th Oscars nomination announcements, actors Zach Wade and Zazie Beetz set a positive tone. For anyone in the film industry, no matter where you're from, to be recognized by the Academy is a dream come true. To be nominated can be life-changing. But the Oscar nominations can be messy. Almost every year, off-screen drama pops up about something, often about who did or didn't get nominated. This year was no exception. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Barbie was the biggest movie of 2023, and it wound up with a very respectable eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Two nominations it didn't get, Best Director for Greta Gerwig and Best Actress for Barbie herself, Margot Robbie. Outrage poured across social media and adding insult to injury. But it's Barbie and Ken. There is no just Ken. Ryan Gosling proved enough for the Academy getting the nod for Best Supporting Actor. Now, Robbie did receive a nomination as a producer for Barbie, and Gerwig was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, but fans were not appeased. Even Hillary Clinton chimed in on X, formerly known as Twitter. But Oscar pundits say the Barbie snubs weren't totally unexpected. The Academy does not have a great history with comedy, and I think the Margot Robbie performance was classified as that. It does not have a great history with IP. It does not have an illustrious history with female directors or stories centered around women. So there were a lot of things here that seemed like they could break the wrong way. Amanda Dobbins co-hosts the movie podcast The Big Picture for the website The Ringer with Sean Fennessy. 2023 was an exceptional year for movies. So when you start looking down the list of what got in and what did not, 
it's harder than usual to say, well, we got to take this movie out. The machinery behind getting an Oscar nomination can feel like a giant mystery. Befitting a voting body with over 10,500 members representing L.A.'s biggest and most close-knit industry. I always like to joke that it's one of the last true public secret cabals of America. <laughs> that We never see any voting results about anything ever. To find out what goes on behind the Oscars, I called Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins. They co-host the Big Picture podcast for the website The Ringer, and they follow the intricacies of the Oscar campaigns year in and year out. I asked them just what goes into an Oscar campaign. It's a long list. It's an entire strategy. It's an entire industry that is hundreds, thousands of people work in this industry, and it is a huge part of the lifeblood of the movie industry, I think, in a kind of a hidden way that many people don't totally understand. There's something very important in Hollywood called For Your Consideration. It's a massive industry powered by publicists and marketeers who are responsible for getting films in front of people at film festivals, organizing screenings for guild members, creating parties after those screenings to create awareness, and then building entire campaigns after the receptions of those movies, and getting the famous people in front of the world so that they know that they should or could be nominated for these various awards. It's a, it's a nine-month job story thing that we spend nine months on our show covering all the time, and it's very elaborate and arcane and in some ways very silly and ridiculous, but it still is essential, I feel like, to the process of getting nominated. In addition to all those parties and events, you get a more public-facing thing, too. You you get ads here in Los Angeles. You get billboards, which are just everywhere and often seem strategically placed according to where voters or other influential personalities live. You get their press appearances, and especially for films with movie stars and or notable names, they just show up everywhere all of the time. And I want to ask about that because, like, let's 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 think about people who are nominated. Like, like let's think about a Lily Gladstone or a Ryan Gosling right? or somebody like that. If you're up for an award right now, are you doing press to try and generate broader buzz? Or are you going on, like, hot ones or whatever, hoping that, like, one Academy voter might happen to catch it and think about you a little bit more? I think it really depends on the nominee. In the case of Ryan Gosling, I would not expect him to do very much press to promote. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that, one of which is the fact that Margot Robbie and and Greta Gerwig are not nominated. That's a factor. But also because he is extraordinarily famous and successful and does not need to campaign aggressively for his award because people know who he is and and Barbie was a sensation. In the case of, I don't know, who's someone who we think will definitely be campaigning hard this year? Daniel Brooks, maybe from The Color Purple. You seem like trouble. I come here out of respect. But if there ain't nothing to get, who is a less well-known name who had a standout role in that movie, which is otherwise not nominated at this Academy Awards. That's someone who you may see on a Jimmy Kimmel or on an internet talk show like Hot Ones or on a podcast like the one that we host. So it really is dependent entirely, I think, on the, the profile of the film and the profile of the performer. I think we unfortunately have to very briefly talk about Harvey Weinstein, who is, of course, since disgraced and in prison right now for rape and sexual assault. But he was often credited as the inventor of the modern Oscar campaign. I mean, was there anything specifically that he and his studio did that was markedly different in like the the Shakespearean love era when 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 this started to kind of become the way that you go about trying to win these awards? From my vantage point, there were two critical things that he did. One was he was very gifted persuader of voters by creating like eventizing films that otherwise would not be classically deemed uh, awards movies. He was able to pit 
smaller films like Shakespeare in Love against bigger films like Saving Private Ryan and play a kind of David versus Goliath card and engender a kind of sympathy mm-hmm. from voters about the way that, you know, big studios had a lot of opportunity and resources and power. And he was running this very small shop that was interested in world cinema. And if you look at the work that is produced at Miramax, you'll see that the true heart of cinema lies in these stories. Now, Obviously, what he did in his private life is heinous. And frankly, what you hear behind the scenes about the way that he campaigned his movies, he also acted terribly at times and lied about his competitors and lied about his own films. And he, of course, was very involved in the editing and cutting of the movies as well and often took opportunities away from artists. And so he was a very bad actor, but he did all of those things. And then also, he was kind of an architect of a sort of swift boating of other movies, the way that he would kind of create disinformation campaigns around the movies that they were competing against. So this was a very nasty period. Absolutely. There's a great recent book by uh, Michael Schulman called Oscar Wars that does the whole history of the Academy Awards, but it really focuses on that Shakespeare in Love versus uh, Saving Private Ryan year that you mentioned as kind of the turning point and certainly the the introduction of of Weinstein's campaign tactics and ugliness. And what I had forgotten was the extent to which that was even a narrative at the time. And it became also just a meta story about Weinstein and Miramax versus Spielberg and DreamWorks and influence on the press and can you buy an Oscar, which was very much in the conversation in 1998, 1999. So he is certainly identified with that. And another funny thing is all of the different rule changes that the Academy institutes in response to things that Harvey Weinstein did. And they're like, well, no, actually, you can't have all of these people at a fancy dinner together with only Academy voters. It's just, and it's like a constant game of, of catch of, well, Harvey did this and now we need to outrule it. We saw this last year with the campaign for Two Leslie and the way that we heard about rules that were violated in an effort to support Andrea Riseborough's performance. A lot of those rules were created because of what Amanda is citing, which is that Harvey Weinstein was effectively bribing Academy members by creating opportunities for them to have great experiences so that they would then like him and vote for his films. Yeah, and this this situation last year was was this interesting moment where this was a low budget film that it seemed like hardly anybody saw, but there was this very well organized by a handful of people grassroots in quotes campaign to get Andrea Riseborough a nomination, where you saw all these posts all of a sudden from from famous people kind of arguing for her. She ends up getting getting nominated, and it just became an entire thing. This is something that happens though. I mean, there, there's just there's a way to do this that is much more sanctioned versus unsanctioned. What we saw last year, these kind of private events at people's homes is unsanctioned. But we see now all the time very famous actors. For example, Jennifer Aniston co-stars with Greta Lee on The Morning Show. They're friends. So Jennifer Aniston moderated Q&As after screenings of past lives to support her friend Greta Lee in front of a, a public audience, often of you know Screen Actors Guild members or Academy members. That's just within the, the bylaws. Now, if you step back, 10 feet and say, why does the Academy Awards need bylaws? Fair question. It's a silly right. made up award show, but it's because people like Harvey Weinstein insinuated themselves into the industry over time and stretched immensely to break those rules. There was something about the two Leslie affair that in the moment, I just thought, well, why hasn't anyone done this before? It was a little ingenious. And I say that as someone who just, again, I'm a millennial woman. So I follow Gwyneth Paltrow on Instagram and I just watched it roll out over time. But that is the thing that is important to note 
This is unverifiable, of course, but this has been happening since those rules were created. There are these parties and these get-togethers. This is an industry of friends. This is an industry of connectivity. So the difference is, is that now we have social media. So when you have a party, if someone accidentally takes a photo of a party supporting someone like Andrea Riseborough, it can find its way to the internet and then everyone can become aware of it. This no longer really can operate in the shadows in the way that it once did. So the Academy has to be more stringent in the way that they police these things. To end, is there any anything else that, that you think is worth flagging about dark horses or about how the next few weeks will play off? Anything that can make somebody feel kind of smart and in the know if they want to, you know, pass it off as their own observation? What's your dark horse? Justine Trier. Justine Trier is the writer-director of Anatomy of a Fall, which is a wonderful French film that was nominated for Best Picture. Justine Trier was nominated for Best Director. Uh, she was nominated for Original Screenplay. The star Sandra Huller was nominated for Best Actress. She could definitely win in Best Original Screenplay. And she's another person who gives a great speech. She gave two at the Golden Globes. Fantastic blouse and jacket. Not that that matters, but also in award season, it does matter. So if you haven't seen Anatomy of a Fall, I, I would check it out because I think there is sort of just a continuing groundswell of support for that movie. I don't know that it'll take home the big prize, but she might be on stage. This is less of a dark horse, but I think the most interesting race this year is Best Actress between Lily Gladstone and Killers of the Flower Moon and Emma Stone and Poor Things. Emma Stone, a winner previously, beloved in the community, I think widely considered one of the signature stars of her generation. And Lily Gladstone, the first ever Native American actress from the United States to be nominated for Best Actress. Someone who I think is the emotional core of that movie, which is very widely appreciated and got 11 nominations but it feels like a very tight race. So close watchers should watch closely. All right. And they can follow the latest in your podcast, The Big Picture on The Ringer. That's Amanda Dobbins and Sean Fennessy, who co-host that podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having us. ¶¶